0: Evening, Dan. No, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Promoted you to co-host again. So there you go. Uh, it's, it's almost becoming a regular habit. Absolutely. Absolutely. How are you doing? How's your week been? Yeah, it's
1: good. Um, just lots of interesting stuff on the go as usual. But I think, you know, a lot of the stuff as we're going to talk about uh, tonight has sort of been thinking about, thinking about Chelsea and everything that sort of flows from that, really. Um, you know, I was, I was asked last week around... You know, how unprecedented is unprecedented. And I almost feel like, <laughs> I almost feel like everything's unprecedented at the moment, like, especially in football. Like, we sort of have gone from, I know, I know lots always happens in football, but just from a systemic level in a way, with sort of COVID and everything that happened around COVID and playing behind closed doors and player contracts to Project Big Picture to Super League. And I know I have probably missed out another four or five other things that have been. <laughs> massive but you know it just it feels like football goes from one systemic change or unprecedented um you know area of discretion or
0: debate to another on a regular basis at the moment yeah i i mean i think that they will well historians will look back in this period of football and have a perspective on it it was the kind of defining period for the game and obviously we're hoping it gets to the right way but it's um yeah, I think it's very difficult to, to almost process it at the moment. It, you almost do less thinking about the actual sport than you do everything that's that's happening off the pitch. I mean, even today, so again to this now with Chelsea and the and the statements around wanting to play behind closed doors and Middlesbrough with a rather spicy statement back, it's just kind of it just feels like almost a just different it was this parallel incident, or terms, probably not the right word, but there's parallel narratives that go on alongside the game that are almost consuming it entirely. It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of bizarre. Yeah, I was going to mention just one of the points, I'm like, <laughs> just in the build-up to
1: that as well, which is, you know, I'm not sure if you saw um, Monday Night Football uh, with Carrie Neville last night or particular parts, but, you know, I think what, what is happening, and I'd be really interested in your take on it generally without putting you on the spot too much in terms of, you know, I think in the past, um, or over a particular period of time, um, you know, politics and sport, even though they sort of were awkward bedfellows, you know, get people like Carragher and Neville and others um, and other types of sports commentators would, would never go near this all sort of geopolitical angle um, or political context for, for sport more generally. And I think obviously with everything that's gone on on a footballing level, restructuring level with Project Big Picture and Super League, and now obviously on a geopolitical level with Newcastle and Chelsea and others, um, it feels like you can't necessarily divorce the two um, anymore. And, you know, whereas I think, you know, Neville and Carragher were pretty forthright in their views, and maybe other journalists have been in in the past to a limited extent, now it feels a lot more front and centre that you can't just... You know, extricate one for the other, one without the other. Really, that it—it's now a debate in the round rather than oh, well, politics shouldn't interfere in sports and vice versa.
0: Yeah, there was um, there was a really good um, line from uh, Jonas, um, the CEO of uh, FIFA, the CEO, chairman—I forget his title of FIFA at the FT summit the other week, which was you know he basically called called out the fact that football has never been apolitical; has always been political, and and as. People within the game we need to decide what our values are uh, and i think there is that realization now i, I listened back to that neville carrigan debate and i full credit to them because I completely agree i think even two three years ago you just wouldn't have pundits and i think there are large swathes of pundits that you know who, who wouldn't be able to talk about this stuff i thought they spoke really really well about it which was which was a nice change um but shall we shall we dive into um into that i suppose on, into chelsea um Give, give us a perspective there's loads of things obviously i mean this is as you said at the top this is unprecedented what's going on there in terms of um what they are and aren't allowed to do give, give us a perspective on like some of the things that we might not be thinking about that they're having to grapple with at the moment whether it's out of contract players youth players buying selling players image rights anything what, what's what's kind of what's the things that are crossing your mind in their situation yeah well let's let's just focus on maybe
1: those if i can recall all of them in that in that order i mean um, let, let, let's maybe just frame it in terms of the, the most important element, I guess, for the club, for the FA, for government, for Treasury, um, for a variety of state, football stakeholders, um, I would have thought, is to try and get the club sold as quickly as possible, Um and uh, there's been reports over the last few days that best bids are being submitted by Friday, I believe. At least that's what the, one of the Candy brothers mentioned during a very bespoke interview with Sky that he did relatively recently before the latest Chelsea game. And we're going to go into, obviously, that detail as to um, valuation, um, takeover, ha- you know, timescales. And it'd be great to get your insights on those um, shortly. But I think then if we take, for example... Um, you know, significant ones like out of contract players, um, Asper Loqueta, Rudiger, Christiansen. It looks likely that um, they, well, they may have. We don't know. They may have already signed pre contracts uh, with particular clubs. Um, so that effectively means that um, you know Chelsea can't enter into new contracts um, at present, based on the, the the license that the government has put in place with um, with the club for um, effectively taking on new liability. Now. Um, the second point there, I guess, is, is that there would be potentially youth players that would also be signing up to scholars, to uh, professional deals at the right time. They you would potentially be very valuable in terms of obviously Chelsea have a, a fantastically lucrative um, you know player trading arm, in truth. Um, and not being able to sign up some of their top talent means they may actually um, fall away and go to, into the arms of potential competitors for relatively limited um, compensation. And then you've got, you know, players that might be able to contract next summer, for example, or um, targeting particular players um, uh, that they might be interested on to try and buy in the summer. And I think more generally, two other things, two things I was just going to then flag. One was commercials and sponsorship and the other uh, was effectively cash flow uh, that that obviously has been talked about in quite a lot of detail. Um, I think... On the commercials, we've obviously seen Nike staying, sticking by Chelsea for the moment anyway. Three obviously aren't, and a number of other um, uh, sponsors, um, it looks like at least at the moment, are suspending their deals rather than terminating their deals. And I guess that is to a degree um, dependent on how long um, a sale process might actually um, take and last. Um, because we're talking about huge sums, you know. Mr Abramovich, a few weeks ago, is reported to be asking for three billion. He's got one and a half billion pounds of loans, query whether um, that could even be paid off under the terms of a government, um, you know, additional license. And obviously that that is a valuation in between all of those numbers as well. But, you know, what was being reported again was that, you know, Chelsea, without being able to bring in any new cash flows or, rely on existing cash flows, um, you know, literally might run out of cash um, in the coming months before the end of the season, unless certain parts of those license um, conditions are um, uh, relieved or released to a degree. So um, there's tons, there's tons of stuff going on right now. And as you said, today was, you know, just another signal of that, which was um, Chelsea suggesting that actually the FA Cup game should be placed behind closed doors because, from an integrity of competition perspective, I think if I've got this right, that if Chelsea couldn't have, is the game at Borough, I think, is that right, Omar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that if there couldn't be enough Chelsea fans, that there would be an integrity of competition issue, um, that, um, couldn't be fully addressed. So, um, you know, and I'm positive there's going to be a myriad of other things. So for example, someone raised the point earlier in the week about whether, um, players' image rights um, companies could be paid by Chelsea based on the terms of the licence and the same with agents, for example. And it does appear that there is a provision in the licence agreement that allows for the payment of third parties uh, based on pre-existing contracts in place. And I would have thought thought that would probably include player image rights companies and um, agents who are owed commissions for particular periods of time. But again, um, you know, n- n- far and away, um, a straightforward, um, not a straightforward situation. And so I was then gonna put the question back on you, Omer, if that's okay, which mm-hmm. is you know we've we've talked quite a lot about uh, over the years about takeovers and valuation. Wh- where Where do you think we are in terms of, firstly, I guess, discussing how valuable a club like Chelsea actually is in practice um, and how you go about thinking about that and then after that around you know how how long a process could actually last I've got my own ideas but my first view is it's not it's not quick um, it's not quick fire sale by any means
0: no I mean in general the club transactions that we tend to end up working on you know they're they're six month processes They're they're really long processes and we'll either come in at the start middle or end of, of those but you know they don't happen quickly and that's because with any investment process particularly something that's as high profile as football club there's a lot of diligence that needs to go into it um and a lot of kind of stress testing of assumptions and uh, and so on it's not it's not on a whim but obviously the circumstances are, are very near um as it relates to valuation obviously there's this kind of a unique weird situation where um you know the seller is not exactly in a Exactly, the best situation um, to, to maximise the price. But equally, there are a lot of interested buyers. But the way to kind of think about this at a very, very high level as to what the valuation is, obviously that three billion figure has been been put out there um, in, in the media, and that seemed like quite a big figure. I forget the figure Bramovich first bought the club for. I think it was, I want to say three hundred million, um, in, including the debt, the value of the club. Um, but obviously happy to be corrected on that. So obviously, you know a, a a tenfold increase feels like quite a lot over over a 19-year period but firstly you need to get a perspective on what are the multiples that clubs are trading at um and different clubs trade at different multiples um, of revenue so you've got if you're i don't know like a, a bottom half mid-table premier league club typically your revenue multiple will be around 1.7 um, and you know, it's, it's not huge if you look at it in other industries you know you get multiples that are far far bigger than that' so 1.7 is, is relatively small and that generally reflects the fact that your income is you know is always that threat of being you always that threat of being relegated and therefore having I mean, your your revenue slashed and therefore um, potentially staying in the championship it actually looks a little bit different for clubs that you would consider global brands or, or bigger clubs so typically the revenue multiple for um a club that is off that stature. we're talking about clubs here that are Top ten, top fifteen in Deloitte Money League and you know, richest in the world, typically revenue multiple be around, and there's a big range here, but the, the median would be around kind of three point five, so roughly double what a, a bottom half Premier League club. And that's just the multiple. Obviously, the revenue itself is different, so you're talking about you know quite a big difference in terms of overall valuations. Uh, but that multiple varies quite a lot. So Man City, when they received some minority investment uh, in 2019, um, were trading on a multiple of around um, six or seven. Uh, and on the flip flip side, when Liverpool was sold um, to FSG or NESV, as I think they were in in 2010, multiple was just 1.4. Um, so there's a huge variation even then for, for quite big brands, um, and, and there's kind of everything in between. Um, so, but but let's say you know you're in that kind of three to four multiple range for a club like Chelsea, who have established themselves as a global brand. I think that's important to say that you know they're not when Roman Br- Br- bought the club. You know they hadn't been particularly successful. Yes, they just qualified for the Champions League, but they certainly weren't, you know, a club that had supporters all over the world. Whereas they certainly do now. You then need to consider, okay, well, what is Chelsea's revenue? Um, and the revenue picture, obviously, in the last few years has been skewed by COVID. It's kind of um, difficult to get a get a kind of true picture on it. Partly as well because they won the Champions League last year, um, which is a huge revenue boost. It probably be in the region of about hundred million. Um, euros depending on on rebates I'm not sure the figures have come out necessarily for last year but obviously they're not going to win the Champions League every single year so how do you discount that how do you actually account for the fact that they might not even qualify for the Champions League some years you know Chelsea have been out of the Champions League in some years in, in the last five or six years uh, when they won the league with under Conte they weren't even playing in Europe at all so you need to kind of factor that all in when you're trying to get a sense of what is this club's revenue and, and generally I think if you had to do that you would land in the 450 million pound range um of their kind of what your expected revenue would be for, for Chelsea. Uh, and then you can kind of do the maths on there. Um, you know, if you're talking about uh, a multiple of four, you're, you're getting up towards two billion. If it's three, it's obviously a bit closer to, to 1.5, uh, but it's well short of the, of the three billion. And this, of course, being aside any of the considerations around the debt. But just, and this isn't pretending that this is a scientific process at all, but this is just looking at, you know, typical valuations of, of clubs historically. And it gives you a sense of what what you know a typical transactional club of this size would go for so it's a, it's a lot less but at the end of the day as we know Dan like if if a you know a buyer turns up and he thinks that there's huge revenue generating potential at the club or he just wants to own Chelsea football club one of the most kind of glamorous or one of the most located clubs in in world football perhaps um you know then then they'll pay what they want for it and and particularly if you think that actually there's the opportunity to expand the stadium or move to a new ground where you know, they then Chelsea's matchday revenues fall well short of what Arsenal and Spurs as will be by by the end of the season. So, as as an investor, as an owner, you, you're thinking about all these things and pricing that into your valuation. But ballpark, I think you're looking at that 1.5 to, to two billion range. So it's not an outlandish figure, the three billion, but but it is a bit high.
1: I'm gonna just, uh, I'm I'm sure you probably saw it as well the last few days, but there was um, a really really good um, on the seventh of March Swiss Ramble. Um, uh, Twitter um, thread detailing a lot of these um, these figures. So you, you're almost spot on, um, Omar, when you said around the 450 figure. So the, the latest figure that Swiss Ramble gave in his thread was that um, revenue, I think it must have been from the last, the last full season, um, went up to 435 million, which is the fourth highest in England, obviously below City, United, Liverpool, I think would have been. But to give you some other figures as well that I thought were just fascinating more generally um, that I sort of took as highlights was um, Abramovich has, put, as you said, 1.5 billion into the club by way of loans. Then the query is whether, you know, 3 billion is um, the right numbers for um, evaluation. Um, he the, the club has made a 900 million euro pound loss over that ownership spell and um, the the, the, ninth, the 2021 season, which was obviously significantly interrupted by COVID, made a substantive loss for Chelsea, one of the biggest ever, I think, in the Premier League, which is £156 million. Um, and this obviously goes into the mix of all of these valuation points. Fascinatingly, um, Chelsea um, have done incredibly well, as we've talked about previously in terms of player trading, that they've actually uh, had player sales over that period of over £600 million, uh, which is actually a quarter of a billion pounds more than the second place team, which is um, Arsenal. Um, but if we actually take that in the round in whichever way you want to look at it, obviously Chelsea being valued pretty highly because of those academy um, revenues that excluding player sales, Chelsea over the Abramovich period have actually had a, um, a £1.4 billion operating loss during that phase. And there was a really interesting stat in that Swiss Rambler thread, which effectively said that Chelsea over that period, over the Abramovich period, have actually had 10 of the 25 largest losses in EPL history, which again then goes to that, that point about, I think, um, you know, uh, that th- the ownership model, which um, might in fact be changing, you know, from that sort of benevolent um, uh, owner that is happy to put in significantly significant millions every single year to maybe perhaps that more... Um, uh, well I guess sustainable model which is looking more on the lines of FSG which obviously has their pluses and minuses and again you know when we talked about exactly as you said Chelsea made over 120 million euros from winning the Champions League last year you know Knight gives them 60 million a year um, and three gives them 40 million pounds a year so there's huge revenues there but ultimately. Um, that the, the wage liability is, uh, is is a massive one. And again, I'd just be really interested in your thoughts on it, which is, you know, some of the figures that I've talked about are exactly the type of things that go on during the due diligence process um, when, you know, from a legal perspective, you're looking at be an absolute myriad of contracts, the same from an accounting and tax perspective, and then the same, obviously, with a lot of the work that you, some, I know that we've done together on the sort of on-pitch um, valuation side. So I was just interested in, again, your views on... Um, maybe that that liability valuation area um, and then also on the the player valuation piece as a wider piece for
0: valuation as well perhaps yeah so i think those losses definitely come into the consideration of evaluation because if you're coming in as as an ownership and you realize that you need to be plugging losses each year then obviously that affects how much you're prepared to to pay or invest in the club um and Chelsea have had huge losses, but it's 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 incredible how much they're able to offset it by player trading. This is where you know a proper due diligence process gets under the skin of the extent to which that's sustainable. So yes, Chelsea have done it for a number of years, and they've think was it six hundred million or so from from players profits from player trading, which is which is incredible, but. What's the pipeline on that? That you know, if I was an owner going in, I'd want to know. I want to be speaking to whether it's the sporting department or the finance um, finance department, understanding what players have you got lined up to sell. What's their book value today? What What are you expecting from the transfer market? How's that been affected by COVID? Because obviously, you know, we're we're talking about um, those financial accounts, the majority of which have been pre COVID. So you're trying to dig into that and understand the extent to which these profits can be realized in the future particularly in the context as well of post-Brexit you know has it been harder to move players out of uh, of English football it's harder to move players back into English football all these things might make you think twice about how operationally efficient the club is um, and they're, they're, they're obviously generating you know good um, good broadcast income from on-field performance which which is really the key lever uh, and their commercial revenue has kind of followed that but you know, how sustainable is it to keep performing at that level if they haven't got that extra, you know, 30, 40, 50 million a year from the stadium competing with the likes of, of Arsenal and Chelsea. So I think those are the types of considerations. And, and whoever comes in, I, I imagine, is not going to be as wealthy as, as Abramovich. So they, there is, you know, these things to, to be thinking about um, long-term at the club. So, yeah, I, I think that, I hope that answers the question. But, yeah, it's... Um, it's it's not a straightforward one the extent to which this club is is operationally efficient going forward
1: and i you know i think the other point that maybe is overlooked a little bit is is timeframes and timescales on this. Um, you know, we've both been involved in a fair share of um, sort of high-profile takeovers at um, at different times. But I, I believe that the current license is either up for renewal or expires or needs to be negotiated again at the end of May, if I remember, if I recall correctly. Again, might be happy to be corrected on that. But I think, I think the point there that becomes very important is, you know, how quickly um, new owners can come in. You know, th- this would effectively be one of the largest by terms of valuation and takeovers of all time, effectively. Um, and, you know, raising that type of money, even if, um, you know, th- there is relative liquidity in um, in an ownership group, would obviously take a significant amount of time because, and obviously the due diligence and the, the share acquisition um, um, documentation everything else that goes with it. You know, um, we've seen, I can't speak for you, but, uh, you know, in the deals that we've done together as well, those deals take significant months, really, and, and I think that's potentially going to cause Chelsea a bit of a longer term issue. We talked about that cash flow point of when you start running out of cash, effectively. Um, but I would have thought I would be and I'd be absolutely shocked, um, you know, a sale could be done inside two or three months just because of the the scale um, and revenue and liability generation of uh, of such a Premier League club. And I just welcome your thoughts on you know you know without crystal ball gazing um you know likelihood of things you know
0: happening quickly or actually you know actually unfolding a little bit before things get better yeah you are absolutely right it's it does take months for these things to get done and and then i wonder you know ultimately it's down to the the by the, extent, the depth of the diligence that they want to do um and you suspect that again because they're reporting and who knows this is you know um people puffing their chests and, and um, you know, trying to, certain sides trying to gain a bit of advantage in the negotiating process. But, but you know, there are potentially a lot of buyers in there. So you, you're probably going to be compelled. I think in a lot of cases of um, transactions that we've worked on, it's really been, you know, maybe a couple of interested parties, but one that's really kind of further ahead, gets into the process, you know, um, agrees a non-binding offer, all this kind of stuff. And, and it becomes much more of a kind of, one-to-one processes feels like a much more complex process and um and as you say i think i think it wouldn't surprise me if it took several months which the implications of which again from a sporting side and again there's people will know more about this than me in terms of ability to pay staff and all, all, all that but just kind of purely operationally inside the club it must be really challenging at the moment because you know what, what costs can you, uh, just purely from a player recruitment point of view, what costs can you commit to scouting and, and knowing what players you can bring in what what can you do to club and, and it takes months, like at this stage of the season clubs are thinking very hard about which players are, they're looking to move on which players are looking in, they've got a much clearer idea now that they've played you know, six, nine months of the season you know, th- these are almost impossible um, decisions to be to make at this stage under these circumstances, so yeah, it's um, I, I you know, I It'd be it'd be very surprising to me if this got com- completed by the end of May, but yes, as you said right at the top, it's it's a bit of an unprecedented situation. Um, as as is the um the last thing I just want to touch on was this behind closed doors or, or or Chelsea asking to play behind closed doors um at the Middlesbrough game, kind of challenging sporting integrity, which you know has, has obviously been um. If, if, Fairly ridiculed, I'd say, in terms of, you know, the, the request and, and obviously Middlesbrough's statement was, was pretty, pretty spicy. But it, it just kind of step, take a step back in the, in the kind of concept of sporting integrity and, and fans in stadiums. We've obviously seen, you know, a massive impacts of or the massive impact that fans have during COVID in the Premier League. You had more away wins than home wins, which was just kind of astonishing, really. I never would have predicted that because you generally break home advantage down into, um, you know, home support influencing the referee um travel distance and, and kind of familiarity with, with the venue itself and, and what we saw with with COVID almost seems to suggest it's all down to home support, geeing up the players or, or intimidating the referee. Um the FA Cup's interesting because obviously there's a much bigger allocation of tickets that are given to away supporters. I, I forget is in, in the Premier League I believe it's um ten percent or, or three thousand whichever is lower. Um and the FA Cup is much bigger. And obviously the gate receipts are typically shared between the two clubs or that will be different in this circumstance. Um, I don't know the science behind the extent to which away supporters and in stadiums influence the performance of the away team. It's very clear what the science is. Science is the presence of supporters generally and stadiums has it on the home team. Um So, I mean, if, if Chelsea had kind of produced numbers to back up the um, uh, their, their argument, then it might have been pretty interesting to have that debate on sporting integrity. But my hunch is that you're not talking about a meaningful impact here, the impact of away supporters on, on results. I just think what's what's likely
1: to happen, Omar, isn't it, is in the coming weeks when different dynamics come into play, um, all, of these, all of these types of issues are going to come to the fore and keep coming to the fore. Because, you know, again, like, just one of the things we were talking about before a little bit was, you know, we're expecting a process to happen seamlessly. Um, and I always think best case scenario, you know, three or four months would be an outrageous timescale to try and get something like this done. Um, And that's actually things going to absolute plan with the preferred bidder then going through the process in pretty lightning fashion. And that's not taken into account if things go wrong. You know, what happens if a preferred bidder is announced two or three months go down the line and then actually the deal falls away, you know, um, effectively means everyone's got to start again or go through another exhaustive due diligence process. So I think there's, you know, my view is is there's a lot of pressure on um, whoever it is at the club to be um, identifying um, the preferred bidders, because effectively um, uh, they need to make the first-time um, acquisition work. Now, whether they do something with another preferred bidder, second preferred bidder in the in the background, in case things fall away, who knows? It's going to be structured or done. But I would be surprised if everyone just puts their eggs in one basket for the preferred bidder in case things go awry. And because obviously, you know, in a way, um, this is a semi-distressed asset to a degree, um, which obviously then reduces valuation points. But again, it seems like there's a competitive process for that um, bidding and valuation point. But I just wonder whether, you know, cr- query one of the criteria is obviously the the, the price that um, a consortium is willing to pay for Chelsea. But there might also be another Significant criteria, which is, you know, are they people that are already in the space that have got deals done, know how to get things done pretty quickly, and that can move with pretty rapid pace. So, I think you know, come Friday and the beginning of the, the weekend, and then next week, it's going to come pretty clear, pretty quickly about you know who's very serious to get this
0: done pretty quickly. Yeah, agree. And I imagine there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of work done on, on PR and media as well over that time, which, which uh, we'll have to try and try and cut through. All right. Well, it's it's half half past the hour, Dan. Thanks for dropping on earlier and we'll um, speak again soon take care Paul. yes
1: thanks for listening you can follow me on twitter tiktok and instagram at football law read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website danielg.com forward slash blogs please do subscribe to the Dundee football podcast like share and tag me if you like the content if not my voice you'll probably also like my book done deal An insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers, and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally, and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by Thirteen, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research, and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years you can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt hoodie cap or all three please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk that's 13shop.co.uk thanks for listening